Jewish humor has some jokes about God, sometimes not very respectful. But there's a story I heard what that's passable. This man was praying to God, and he said, God, what is a million years like for you? And surprisingly, God answered, like a minute. Well, God, what's a million dollars to you? Like a penny. So can you give me a penny? In a minute. <laughs> now, sometimes Jewish humor is not very theologically correct. But it's not only true of our dear Jewish people, but also of many Gentiles. I'm now 87, and I live in a retirement center, and there's a Gentile there that is 90 years old, but he has no faith in the inspiration of God's word, and he challenges us all the time because he doesn't want to know. Not only that, but he taught high school students the scripture as literature and destroyed the faith of many. I wondered, how could he not see what I see when I read the Bible? Well, the disciples asked Jesus one day, why do you speak in parables? And Jesus answered, it is given unto you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God, but not unto them. Having eyes they see not, having ears they hear not, having hearts they do not understand. God reveals his mystery only to those who want to know him. My friend thinks he's too educated to believe in the inspiration of scripture. When I was 14 years old, not very well educated, God's Spirit revealed Jesus to me through the Word. And I accepted him as my Lord and Savior. And the Bible became a new book to me, became a living book. And the first time it became understandable for me. Now what happened is revealed in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 2 and 3, as newborn babes, because... When you accept the Lord in your heart, you're born again. You're like a new babe. As a newborn babe, we desire the pure milk of the word that you may grow thereby, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. So when I accepted the Lord, I entered into his grace. He was gracious to me, and I understood that. Now I've been a believer for 73 years, and I've found that God has more than fulfilled his graciousness to me, that the word of God is true. I feel like King David, who wrote in Psalm 34, verse 6 to 9, this poor man cried out, and I cried out many times in the last 73 years, and the Lord heard him, and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps all around those who fear him and delivers them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. 
Blessed is the man who puts his trust in him. So I've experienced that the word of God is true. Now there are many mysteries of God that we do not know. In fact, Moses wrote in Deuteronomy 29.29, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but those things which are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this Torah. We want to discuss this morning three mysteries that's revealed in the Word of God. We're going to look at the mystery of God's eternity. He's always existed. He had no beginning. He will have no ending. We will look at the mystery of God's incorruptibility. God cannot be corrupted by evil. He's pure and holy. We will look at the mystery of God's indispensability. He's indispensable for us. We can do nothing without him. That is, when it comes to salvation, when it comes to living a life of godliness, he is total, we are totally dependable upon him. So first, let's consider the mystery of his eternity. God always existed, for he had no beginning. In Psalm 92, this is revealed. Before the mountains were brought forth or ever, you had formed the earth and the world. Even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Since everything in our world, in our human experience, has a beginning, this is a little difficult to understand. But it's true. He is the everlasting God and the creator of all things. There's one other mystery we discovered from God's word, is that he's unchangeable. He's always been perfectly unchangeable. For I am the Lord, in Malachi 3.6. I change not, therefore you sons of Jacob are not consumed. God will keep his word. You might ask, what was God doing before he created us? He's always been the creator. So we can assume that before he created us, he was at work of creation in eternity past. Science has discovered countless galaxies, some, brilliant, some billions of light years away from our Milky Way and Earth. And some assume there are those trillions of light years away from the creation of our world. So he created multitudes. He not only created those galaxies before he created the Milky Way in our world, but he also created species of angels and then decided to create humanity. Listen to Psalm 8, verse 3 to 5. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you are mindful of him? And the sons of man that you visit him. For you have made him a little lower than the angels. And you have crowned him with glory and honor. So when God created us, he wanted us to reflect the glory of his personality. The glory of his character. God originally planned to share eternal life with us. 
Remember when God created Adam, God put him in the Garden of Eden. And he said before he created Adam, let us make man in our likeness and in our image and our likeness and let him have dominion over the world. And God created us to be his sons and daughters, but we were caught up in an insurrection of Lucifer and his angels. In eternity past, there was only one will, the will of God. In the insurrection, there was another will that was trying to be established. But uh, in, in eternity past, there was a world was under the authority of God, love and unity, and all the creatures enjoyed the abundance of his generosity. How did this happen? How did it enter into God's good creation? Well, God created the angels with a free will. And the scripture reveals there was an angel by the name of Lucifer, the son of the morning, one of the early creations. He was beautiful and perfect, and he became the first rebel because of pride. Listen to what the Bible reveals about Lucifer. In Isaiah 14, verse 12 to 15, How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How art thou cut down to the ground, which didst weaken the nations? For thou hast said in thine heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. Yet thou shalt be brought down to hell to sides of the pit. The Bible tells us that God created hell for the devil and his angels. And unfortunately, those who are a part of his insurrection, that's their destiny. Now, any time God wants to banish Satan, take over the affairs of man, he can do it. There's an appointed time for it to happen. We do not know the exact time when these things take place. But Jesus, the Messiah, will excel and will cast Satan to the bottomless pit and then to the lake of fire. We do not know when it will happen. Now, I want you to know that originally God intended for Adam and Eve and their descendants to have eternal life. In the Garden of Eden, God planted two, two special trees. One was a tree of testing. Would man trust God? Would they obey God? And he said, you are not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For in the day that you eat, you will die. God told them the truth, but they decided to believe the Lucifer, who was also called the serpent, and they disobeyed God. And so they were not allowed to eat of the tree of life and live forever. God drove our ancestors out of the garden. Sin had ruined our chance for eternal life. But then God planned something else in eternity past. He planned the creation and atonement 
of mankind if he would sin. God was prepared. Listen to Ephesians 1, verse 3 to 6. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestinated us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, this was the will of the Lord, that we would be holy and righteous and have eternal life. To the praise of the glory of his grace, by which he made us accepted in the Beloved. So before creation of the Milky Way and the earth, God had determined to create humanity to be his sons and daughters, to be clothed with the glory of his righteousness. But when man failed, God had a plan, a plan of redemption. So that's the mystery of God's eternity. Secondly, let's examine the mystery of God's incorruptibility. God's holiness cannot be corrupted. 1 Samuel 2.2 tells us, No one is holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you, nor is there any rock like our God. One of the characteristics of a rock is the uh, permanency and stability of God. Now, some people have a total misconception of God. The pagans did. You know, they worshipped many gods. But in their mythology, the gods were enemies of mankind. They played practical jokes on them, on, on mankind. They were undependable. They were unfaithful. They were liars. They were thieves. They were in conflict constantly among themselves, and they had ill will toward man. I, I'm interested how this concept got into science fiction. One of the TV programs that I enjoyed was Star Trek. And in Star Trek, wherever the uh, uh, solar, the uh, interstellar, uh, USS Enterprise went exploring space. Wherever it went, it found wicked and evil species that had ill will. And not only that, but according to the story, they invented a fictitious character by the name of Q. Now, Q was infallible. He had all power. And yet all he used that power for was to play jokes on Captain Kurt and the crew. And that is not the way God is. God is dependable. And um, no one is holy like the Lord, for there's none besides you, nor is there any rock like our God. So God said to Israel, I've set my love upon you. Remember, I'm a jealous God. So if you show love to the invention of your minds in creating idols, I'm going to be jealous because I love you. And God has demonstrated that in history.
So, what I want us to understand is that there, that mankind has the problem of evil. Well, my son, my grandson, Stephen, asked me quite a theological question when he was 11 years old. He said, what if God was evil? I said, well, if he was evil, he wouldn't have created us with the free choice to trust him or not trust him. And he wouldn't have sent his son to be an atonement for us. But God's son is not evil. You know, what the scripture reveals is that human nature is the source of evil. James 1, 13 to 16 says, Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil. He can't be tempted. He can't be corrupted. Neither tempteth he any man. So where does this evil come from? We read it in the papers and we know from history. And here's the answer. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then when lust hath conceived, it brings forth sin. And sin, when it is finished, brings forth death. Do not err, my beloved brethren. So there's a nature of the flesh that is very undependable, very wicked. The lust of the flesh, the pride of life, the covetousness. We all have the seeds in us. Fortunately, we also have the new nature. Now, some theologians believe that God is a universal playwright who wrote out everyone's life script before the establishment of the world. Now, if God is the universal playwright, he would be the author of all that is evil. Such a belief is unthinkable and contrary to the revelation of God's holy character in Scripture, reveals to us a holy, pure God. The logical conclusion of such a position would mean that a person commits adultery or if he practices any kind of evil, he can say, God made me this way. So don't blame me, blame God. Can you imagine Hitler in the Day of Judgment saying, don't blame me for the death of six million Jews and the 25 million people that were killed in World War II because you made it that, me that way. So you can't judge me. You wrote my life script to build concentration camps and gas chambers. Now, I know this, that the will of God is not being done in the world today. That's why Jesus taught us to pray, Thy will be done on earth as it is done in heaven. It's a future promise. The will of God is not being done in the world today. It is not God's will for wars to break out, for children to be soldiers, for suicide bombers, for theft of private property, for murders, for rapes, for the death of babies, for the breakup of the family. I can go on and list a multitude of other sins that grieve the heart of God. A survivor in the Nazi death camp was asked, have you lost your faith in God? He said, no, 
I've lost my faith in humanity. So the scripture teaches us that God is incorruptible. God is not sinful in any way. That's why we can depend on him. Thirdly, let's consider God's indispensability. Now we know this, those of us who have come to know the Lord, that God's Son is indispensable for our salvation. I could not save myself, nor could you, for we are all sinners, and he, we are indispensable. he is indispensable. God knew that we would be born before he created the world. He foreknew that we would need a Savior, and he chose us to be his children. This is the greatest mystery of the kingdom of God, that before the world was created, God knew there'd be an Al-Ranji. God knew you would be here. And God was so displeased with Adam's sin, but he had a plan. The eternal Son of God, a volunteer, became a man. He who knew the praises of angels suffered the curses of men. You know, the crucifixion is one of the worst ways to die. Slow and very painful and a lot of humiliation. But listen to the prophet, of, uh, the prophet Isaiah, who predicted in Isaiah 53, 5-7, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. 700 years before the Messiah came, this was predicted. And it was predicted in the perfect tense, Hebrew, because it was as if God said, it's just as if it happened. I've decided, I've determined that this would take place. And it did take place. He paid for our salvation through his suffering and death on the cross. And you know, I thought the other day, I was quite moved, that when the Lord Jesus died on the cross, he did not have the comfort of the Spirit. He cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He experienced the wrath of God that we deserve, the just for the unjust. He paid the price for our sin, and only he could have qualified because his life was so precious as part of the Trinity. The Son of God suffered alone on the cross and took the wrath of God upon himself. So you and I will never be at the white throne judgment of God, for we have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. And I want you to know that it's because of him. He's indispensable for salvation. He can't say, why can't I worship God and not Jesus? Well, you, you need a savior. You need the Lord Jesus because he died for your sins. I love this uh, present reality of our redemption. In Colossians 1, verse 13, 14, 
God who hath delivered us from the power of darkness and hath translated us into the kingdom of his dear Son, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. So when you accept the Lord, that moment, you are delivered from the power of darkness, you're translated in the kingdom of his dear Son, that we don't have to wait to discover if we're going to be saved or not. It is accomplished through his love. He is dispensable for our salvation. He's also indispensable for our salvation. He's also indispensable for the fulfillment of our earthly life. Yeshua the Lord said in John 15:5, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. The fruit of the Spirit comes through the Lord Jesus, which is love, peace, and long-suffering. It's just so many wonderful characteristics through the Holy Spirit. And you know, we have to learn to depend on him. I read about uh, the evangelist Louis Palou, who said, during my first semester at Bible school, the founder of Torchbearers, Major Ian Thomas, spoke at our chapel service. He talked about how it took Moses 40 years in the wilderness to learn that he was nothing. Then one day Moses was confronted with a burning bush, likely a dry bunch of ugly sticks, yet Moses had to take off his sandals. Why? Because God was in the bush. Major Thomas said, God was telling Moses, I don't need a pretty bush or an educated bush or an elegant bush. Any old bush will do as long as I'm in the bush. If I'm going to use you, it wouldn't be you doing something for me, but me doing something through you. And so uh, this Lewis said, I was that kind of bush, a useless bunch of dried up sticks. I could do nothing for God. All my reading and studying was insufficient, worthless unless God was in the bush. Only he could make something happen. So when Thomas ended his message, he said, I ran back to my room and in tears prayed in my native Spanish. My spiritual struggle was finally over. I'll let God be God and let me be dependent on him. He became the Billy Graham of South America, led thousands upon thousands to Jesus. Life is of no meaning without Jesus. I mean, what is your purpose in life? To make money? <laughs> most of us most of us have failed in that. <laughs> to be famous, most of us have failed already in that. But the purpose is to be usable of God. You know, I tell you that before I preach, I always pray, Lord, you got to put life in these words. I can't do that. I can create a sermon, but unless the Holy Spirit brings life to it so that people feel the presence of God, it's useless. And I am so thankful that God has been so good to us 
and has demonstrated his love. I'm amazed that people enjoy my ministry, but many, at least they, they're kind, they say they do. But I know that God has been so good to me. Now those who will yield to the Lord will find that their life will have meaning. Charles Spurgeon, who was one of the famous preachers of the past generation, put it this way. We read his uh, devotions every day. But believers who know Christ understand that the light and faith are so blessedly united that the gates of hell cannot prevail to separate them. They who love God with all their hearts find that his ways are ways of pleasantness and all his paths are peace. Such joys, such brimful delights, such overflowing blessednesses do the saints discover in the Lord. And so far from serving him from duty, they would follow him through all the world, though all the world cast out his name as evil. We fear not God because of any compulsion. Our faith is no chain. Our profession is no bondage. We are not dragged to holiness, nor driven to duty. No, our piety is our pleasure. Our hope is our happiness. Our duty is our delight. <laughs> That's true. There's nothing that delights us more than to be righteous to trust him, and he will do for you what you cannot do for yourself. Let's pray. Father, in our feeble way, we've tried to communicate your great love and your great mercies. But Lord, you have to witness to the hearts of those who listen. You have to call them into the salvation of God. We commit this congregation into your hands. May they come to love you and find a joy in serving you. I pray this for everyone in the precious name of the Lord Jesus, my Savior and Lord. Amen.